Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Sam Morris, lecturer at Rikyo University in Tokyo. Sam Morris, thank you for coming on Lost in Citations. Hi, thank you very much. Thank you. It's great to be here. And you are also a PhD candidate at the University of Leicester. And for those of you that might recognize that university, um, you might remember Dr. Jim King's interview, Citation 27. And so Dr. Jim King is your PhD advisor? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So uh, my, my supervisor is Jim King, Dr. Jim King. Yeah. I've been reading a lot of his papers recently. So um, that's, a, that's a great episode for people to listen to, to go back and check that out. Um, but the paper we will be discussing today, this was published in the Chinese Journal of Applied Linguistics in October of 2018. And the name of the paper is Teacher Frustration and Emotion Regulation in University Language Teaching. Lots of questions, uh, lots of topics to talk about. Very interesting paper. It's actually kind of very, this is strange to say, it's very close to my heart because I could empathize with a few of a few of your participants in this study. Um, I don't know if I would go so far as to bang my desk, but um, I definitely, <laughs> I liked how you included that, <laughs> bangs desk. Um, but yeah, let's, let's start with your background. Uh, I'll kind of just hand it over to you. Uh, if you kind of take us through your your history up until this paper, sure, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I've I've been working as a language teacher now since when about two thousand and five, I think. Mm -hmm. So about eighteen years, and most of that has been in Japan. Although I've done a few stints teaching in the UK and uh, Europe as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, but mostly in Japan. And I started uh, in a private language school, um, which are called Eikaiwa in Japan. Mm -hmm. And I was in the south of Japan uh, working for about um, about five years, I think. That was, that was a great experience. I really enjoyed it. And I worked... I worked both as a teacher and I did some time as a, a teacher trainer as well, mm -hmm. which... Um, was was a really eye-opening, uh, difficult experience, but but one that now I, I have a lot of fond memories of. And then I spent the next five years. At that, at that point, I was kind of ready to leave Japan. I'd kind of I kind of had enough, but I got a, a job opportunity up in the north of Japan in Fukushima, um, working for a company called British Hills. I, I don't know if you know anything about that, no. Jonathan. Okay, it's a. I mean, you can Google it. It's. It's. I think it's fairly well known these days. But um, there's a kind of. What would you call it? It's kind of an English village, I guess. Uh, uh, a company called the Sano Educational Foundation. They built this kind of mock British manor house hmm. uh, in the mountains of Fukushima, and wow. they built. Uh, there's a pub there and a, and a, a tea room. <laughs> So I went, I went there to work uh, as a teacher, um, which was really interesting that the reason I went is it just a completely different context to what I was previously working in. Mm. Um, really enjoyed it and came to the realization, as I'm sure, sure many people do, that 
what I thought was going to be just a short term job was looking more and more like it was going to be a, a long term kind of career choice. Mm. And that was about, I guess it was around 2011 and decided then maybe I, you know, if I'm really going to keep keep up with this, I should probably go and get some more advanced qualifications um, to help me, you know, m- move on, really mm. um, move into to different work. Um, so at that point, I, I did a, a Trinity dip TESOL. And I also started my MA uh, online, which I completed in 2014, mm-hmm. and then moved to work in universities in Japan. Mm. And I've been at uh, my current uh, school, Rikyo University, in the Center for Foreign Language Education and Research for two years. It's my, my second year now. Yeah, I think that's a, a very short summary. Yeah. And what was your interest maybe before you came to Japan? What was your undergraduate in? Oh yeah, in, well, maths actually. So nothing to really nothing to do with uh, language education whatsoever. And yeah, I, you know, you know, being reflective these days, I look back and um, uh, probably I, I went to university with with the wrong um, the wrong kind of view of what university was. You know, I, I went to because I thought it was the place I should go. Mm. Um, I should say I'm I'm not really from an academic family. I'm, I was the first person to go to university in my family. Wow! And I was uh, I was always pretty good at maths uh, at school, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do at university. So I ended up choosing what I thought would be a good career move, I suppose. Hmm. But um, you know, I I really enjoyed university, but I I did struggle sometimes with the course itself, and, and it wasn't really, I guess, what I wanted to do. Mm. Um, which is why, I, you know, I, I really needed a break after university. And that was partly the reason that I decided to travel uh, to see new things, really, I think. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. All right. So let's let's lead up to the background of this paper. So this was published in 2018. Yeah. Sure. Um, when did you start thinking about the paper and when was the data collection? Was this coinciding with with what? Like your new position? uh after your ma or talk us through how this came about yeah that's right um so i did my ma i I guess i finished 2014 and my dissertation for my ma was on was on emotions but student emotions Hmm. and i investigated uh anxiety Hmm. and i think i think that's probably the most studied emotion um, as you, as, as anybody in language teaching who's interested in psychology might know, there's been quite a lot of research done on language anxiety. Mm. And then what, you know, what did I learn from the MA? I think the thing that I learned the most is that, is that research is really, really hard. Mm. <laughs> and maybe you've experienced it too. Like, um, you know, even at that time, securing access, I had to I had to try and secure access to high school students, which was which mm. was really hard. Yep. And I interviewed some of the students, and those interviews took place in in English, um, uh, the, at the the request of the school. They they wanted these interviews in English, which meant that, you know, uh, just just getting data from students is is really hard. You know, from participants, um, and that that was I think the overwhelming feeling I took away at that point was this is really hard, but but not unenjoyable, certainly not unenjoyable. I, I learned a lot. 
uh, about it. And then, uh, yeah, 2015, I started working for a university uh, for the first time in a in a full time position. It was fantastic, and I'd I'd already thought, oh, I'm probably going to continue and do a PhD. That was always in my mind. Um, firstly, to kind of firstly because I enjoyed the MA and I wanted to continue the kind of momentum that I'd built up. But then secondly, um, I did think, pragmatically speaking, if I want to continue working at universities in Japan, it, it would, you know, it's a good thing to have. Certainly that was in, in my mind. And I started to look around, you know, reading just different areas. What could I study? What, what interests me? And so two things kind of happened simultaneously, I think. The first thing was I started to think about what am I finding difficult, you know, as a new teacher in a university who'd, who'd never been, you know, until that point, I'd never really been responsible for assessment. I'd never really been responsible for, for taking a group of students and leading them over a semester or over a year and being kind of responsible, solely responsible for their learning. This was really a new thing for me. Mm-hmm. So I had I had kind of these issues that I was dealing with, um, particularly around grading, uh, feeling a lot of anxiety about grading. You know, I, I always struggled. Um, I always worried that, you know, when I graded students, would I have an impact on their motivation, et cetera, et cetera. So I had a lot of feelings of that. And then around about the same time, I found a paper by Jim King. Um, he'd written a paper in 2016 on emotional labor of language teachers. And it's just one of those, I'm sure everybody has these papers that just sort of speak to them. And for me, for me, the, reading that paper, the, the, the thing that really struck me was like, oh, wow, re, you know, research can be this. You know, mm. you know, I think until that point, I hadn't realized like research could be, you know, speaking to teachers, trying to learn from experienced teachers and, and reporting on their experiences. Is it, is, it the, is it the paper, It's Time, Put on the Smile, It's Time? Yeah, that's exactly the one. It's okay. Time, Put on the Smile, It's Time, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> which is a 2016 paper on, uh, on emotional labor. And yeah, that, I think that was just those two things happening at the same time. And I mean, sorry, there's a third thing too, which is that Jim King visited the institution I was working at and so i got to meet him so all all of these three things happened at the same time and that kind of naturally led into looking at teacher emotions rather than student emotions and i guess about six months later i submitted my my application to you know to the to leicester university to um to undertake a study of teacher emotion regulation yeah and then this paper falls under the umbrella of the PhD study or the initial? Yes, that's right. So um, this paper came from some of my early work uh, during the PhD. Okay. Um, uh, this paper and another paper, actually. Um, and then since then, since 2018, we, we may talk about this more, but I've then since expanded this paper uh, this study has been expanded into uh, into my thesis. Um, uh, so, so this I, essentially, I guess, functioned as kind of a pilot study for for what ended up being the thesis. So, the name of the paper that we're talking about today is mm-hmm. "Teacher Frustration and Emotion Regulation in University Language Teaching." 
What's, it, the, yep. what's the other paper you said? I, maybe I'd like to read that as well. Sure. Um, let me just bring it up so it's completely correct. <laughs> <laughs> so it's in uh, it's in a it's a, it's a book chapter, uh, and the chapter title is "Emotion Regulation Amongst University EFL Teachers in Japan: The Dynamic Interplay Between Context and Emotional Behavior." Did and you did you write that with Jim King as well? Yeah, with with Jim King, and that's in uh, in the book that was published by Multilingual Matters, I think, two thousand and twenty. Which was called uh, the emotional roller coaster of language teaching. Got it. Okay. Um, if I could just interject, sure. Uh, real quick. Uh, sometimes I get emails from from people and kind of talking about some of the stuff that I've said on the show as far as my research path, uh, giving advice. I, I kind of just want to say quickly that. I'm almost mirroring what's going on with you where I really focused on the student side of anxiety and now I'm kind of I've, – I've switched programs and I've switched schools. So a lot of people have heard me talk about my study with Fitbits and heart rate and correlating right. with self-reports. Yep. Um, but now I'm much more interested in the teacher side and I'm going to be focusing more on that. So it, it – and it – I don't know if you got to this point as well with anxiety – it, at a certain point, it becomes very narrow, and mm. then you feel, well, okay, now we're just really focusing on the anxiety of students, and you almost – I reached this point where I just felt, you know, it seems like the field has has a mutual understanding of where we are with it to some extent to, for the most part as far mm. as uh, – for like a brief um, a cliff note would be, you know, anxiety generally decreases over time, mm-hmm. and, you know, student uh, – speaking performance generally increases over time. Mm. I mean, yeah, there's, there's outliers in these things. And, but, um, I just thought, okay, I was initially interested in this subject when you're faced with a student and you probably face this a lot at the Akaiwa or being doing teacher training or something mm. where the teacher says something, something, the student says nothing and the teacher and the student are staring at each other. And there's this, there's this thing there that's happening. And for the longest time, I was just focused on the student. And now I'm really interested in the teacher. Um, and I'm really excited about it. I almost got to this point where I was really down with, uh, not down with my research. I just felt kind of, I don't, I don't really know the word, the word, like I'd painted myself into a corner. And then now I'm, I'm, I'm going to be looking at a few things, but mostly focused on the teacher side. And it almost feels like there's, there's this whole world opening up. And to go back to your other point about the ethics, Ethics is going to be way easier <laughs> if you if you're going to be dealing with teachers, right? You don't have to worry about all that other stuff or you know translations and and all this, these other things that come with it. Yeah, no, I mean some really good points there. I think like I think for me, what I found with anxiety is so one I did in my MA it was it was a mixed method um, study. So I did interviews, but I did and I did a survey. But one other thing I did was like a narrative frames. So I don't know if you've heard about those you know what a narrative frame is not really no okay so i uh a narrative frame um is essentially a story you get the students or you get the participants to write a story and you give them kind of sentence starters Mm. for that story so you know uh off the top of my head i think the sentence starters i had were things like when i arrived at I felt blah, blah, blah. Mm. 
one and then it might be like one time I felt anxiety during my during my study tour was blah blah blah. Mm. The reason I felt anxiety was blah blah blah. Where was I? You know. So the idea is what it was is to get the students to write a narrative. And so I, I got 40 of these narratives, which is really uh, interesting. But what I found is about 10 of them, 10 of them were from students who just were like, either they just wrote, oh, I didn't feel any anxiety, mm. which, which is perfectly fair, you know. Yeah. Or or they'd maybe they'd misinterpreted my instructions and they'd written about something that excited them mm. or something they enjoyed. And I started to think like, yeah, you know, we, we are – we are just focusing on one emotion, but why, why, you know, and I'm not, I'm sure I'm not the only person to have felt that around that time because that's, you know, certainly that there were papers popping up around then, which started to say, hold on a second, you know, there's more emotions going on here. It's not, it's not as simple as just, just anxiety. And I think that's, you know, when you said it's getting very narrow, I think, yeah, that's exactly how I felt as well. You know, um, students aren't just feeling anxiety or they might be feeling anxiety along with another emotion mm. at the same time. So, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that I wanted to do a more, you know, a more holistic study of, of emotion in general, rather than just focusing on one singular emotion as well. And then, yeah, interesting, you raised ethics. Uh, I think ethics, I don't think the ethics are necessarily any easier, but I think. Oh, the, really? Well, ethics is a tough one, isn't it? I think mm. the access is easier. Right. In some ways. Is, is ethics easier? I felt, well, just, just this could be a personal thing. I felt a great deal of pressure to protect the participants that I've worked with, the teacher participants. Um, well, that's a good thing, though, isn't it? Oh, of course. Um, so I suppose what I'm saying is when it was with students, I guess I felt with students there was no, and it could have been just the nature of the studies I was doing in my MA. I never, ever felt there was any realistic chance that those students, A, I never felt there was any realistic chance that those students were going to say things which would cause them distress. Mm. And B, I never felt there was any realistic chance that anyone would work out who they were. Right. But working with teachers, I actually felt that, you know, I, I guess I felt a little bit differently. And I felt like, you know, these are that there's a great. You, you have to be very careful when you work with. Uh, what am I trying to say? I think the teaching community in Japan is, is, is not massive, you know, and um, these are people's lives and careers. And I'm asking them to talk about things which are very personal and which are not always positive, mm. I, I felt a really great responsibility to protect them uh, and also to uh, to make sure that I wasn't misinterpreting what they said. But from, from my perspective reading this paper, mm. th these are things that are just uh, um, ubiquitous, I would say. The, these things, I, I don't think anyone was saying anything in this paper that was uh, outside of the norm of what people experience or have observed. I think the interesting thing about this paper is, yes, it was put into print, mm. right? So maybe you kind of, you know, cross the void there as far as putting it into print. But I see what you're saying, though. You know, you're you're 
is it one of those things where participants were coming to you later and saying, oh, can you cut that out? Or was this your own personal anxiety about it? I think it's probably my own personal anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think, I think that's healthy. I think if you're, if you're going to be asking people to share very personal information, I think it's healthy that you treat that information carefully. Mm. Um, so I don't, I don't think it's unhealthy. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Probably some of the participants that I've worked with, you know, don't care. You know, they, they're quite happy to say they don't really mind if anybody knew it was them who said it or not. I'm, you know, uh, again, I'm just projecting. I, I don't know that for sure. Um, but that doesn't mean that I don't feel a great responsibility for that. I mean, the other uh, thing that is beneficial from what you're saying, I mean, in Japan, a lot of people change jobs quite often. Mm, that's right. So um, as far as what I was saying with ethics, ethics was so difficult with the project I did. It actually delayed my project over a year and a half. Now, it wasn't, wow, okay. it wasn't all because of the ethics, but the ethics – so there's this committee that met once a month. And mm. if there was any questions about like – if someone had a comment, then you had to respond to it and then it was delayed another month. And this went on for months and months and months. And then finally, my project was approved December of 2019. Mm, I see. And so as you know, December, that's when the term ends essentially in Japan. So I said, okay, I guess I'll collect, da I'll collect data April 2020 and that's when COVID happened. So yeah. like, I just don't think – I see what you're saying. Yes, there's always going to be some ethical things. But as far as collecting data, I think in some ways it's it's easier collecting from teachers. Yeah, I think um, – I suppose all I'm trying to say is um, – and firstly, I, I think I agree that collecting data from teachers can be easier. Mm. You know, there's – there's no doubt. And I think that particularly in Japan, power, power relations exactly. yeah. have a great impact on the kind of data you collect. But I also think what I suppose what I'm trying to say is like we shouldn't we shouldn't just assume that the ethics will be easy. Mm. We shouldn't just assume that collecting data from teachers is going to be easy. And I think um well, now you're now you're discouraging me. Now, 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 now. I, oh man, I was all excited. Now you're, you're. I'm glad you're saying this. It's true. I hadn't. I hadn't thought. I had just framed it. Okay, it's going to be way easier than what I what I had to do before. And it may be that the yeah, I mean, it may may well be easier because it sounds like the kinds of things that um, that frustrated you seeking ethics the first time. Yeah, they may well not be an issue in seeking ethics uh, in a study of teachers. Um, you know, one thing that uh, you, you really have to be careful, I think, when you interview teachers is, is something called shared assumptions as well. Mm. And so a shared assumption is basically uh, you have an assumption uh, and you think the other person shares that assumption, but they may not. Um, to give you an example is... Um, what would be a good example? Well, okay. I mean, a really simple example might be that you you find grading papers difficult, tiring, and stressful, mm. and you assume that all teachers find grading, for example, written paragraphs stressful um, and and difficult. 
And because you're because we are teachers and because we are so close to it and we do it ourselves, we have to be very careful, I think, not to um, not to project our own kind of experiences uh, on, onto the, the teachers and misrepresent what they're saying or, or, or at worst, I think, is to fail to actually get to get to the truth of what they're saying. Well, you even you even mentioned that in the conclusion of this paper, mm. um, you said a potential limitation was precipitated by the implicit nature of emotion regulation, which meant that the researchers were required to offer examples of their own emotion regulation practices. So even mm. there, I guess you had mentioned in the paper that um, it was hard to get answers at first, I guess, and you were kind of giving them some, of, yeah, some prompts, yeah. I guess. Yeah, so what? So that's a really uh, great point. So um, when I when I did this study, there really wasn't much. Uh, there wasn't really wasn't much written about emotion regulation in language teaching at all. And so I started off, I think, uh, when, when I did some initial pilots. Um, yeah, kind of asking asking questions about emotion regulation, like, oh, did you? You know, how did you regulate your emotions there? Did you hide the emotion? Did you um, did you think about something new? Yeah, it, it just wasn't working. And in the end, um, what what I did is looking to the literature in kind of general psychology. How how do they mm. research emotion regulation? And um, one of the one of the papers I came across, you know, they started off with a story, and that story was very simple. It was think of a time in the past two weeks when you have managed controlled or regulated your emotions mm. uh, and i adapted that by you know adding well in in your classroom in the language classroom just think of a time um in the past few weeks when you've regulated your emotions or controlled your emotions or managed your emotions and that that was a much better start and and to be honest once i'd done that it, it everything proceeded quite smoothly because i think once the once the participants kind of knew what they were expected to talk about it just became much easier uh, for them to talk about it so uh, again the paper is teacher frustration and emotion regulation in university language teaching so let's mm. get into some of the meat of the paper so sure. there was there were seven teachers yep. in the study and you had semi-structured interviews classroom observations and simulated recall i guess my first question is okay so I'm in the process of planning my PhD project mm -hmm. and the, you mentioned research is hard and I agree, but I would say it's, it's much like building a house. Mm -hmm. Like you should spend a lot of time on the foundation, right? Um, sure. And I'm actually endeavoring as much as possible to avoid classroom observations. Oh, um, okay. Interesting. <laughs> I, um, I, I feel like while they're, they could be beneficial, mm. um, just it adds so much more data and the other the other thing is and i and i get sometimes some depending on your focus it's absolutely essential right mm -hmm. um that's right yeah but when i looked at that and i just saw you had seven teachers how many classes classes did you have to observe you're you're also are you teaching full-time at that time yeah i was teaching full-time i mean if, it, if it's all right is it worth me talking about so uh, this this study was the pilot, but then if we're talking about my full PhD, then I extended this. So in in my full PhD, which is a follow up to this study, um, I did a very similar methodology, and in that case, I had fifteen participants 
with two observations each. So were you it, observing all of them? I, I observed them all. Jeez. So it was. How do you have the time? Well, yes. <laughs> uh, good question. And it took a whole year to just collect data. So because because three interviews with each person essentially because he had the initial interview. Then one observation, then the, the stimulated recall interview, and then the second observation, then the stimulated recall interview, and that's so, that's that's a ridiculous amount of work for one person to do while you have your own teaching load. Yes, <laughs> like I don't want to do that. Like I just that's too much. I mean, if you could have sure. um, got someone to again, that's why I kind of want to absorb the classroom observations. Um, the stimulated recalls might be. Might be necessary, and interviews I think are definitely necessary. Um, but the 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 design I'm I, I'm I I mean I have, it hasn't been approved yet, but it actually kind of follows into to one of your recommendations at the end of the paper, more more mm. of a longitudinal tracking kind of thing. Um, yeah. But yeah, I just so I, but Jim, your 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 advisor did the same thing, so it's not like you could go to Jim King and say, "Oh my gosh, this is too much." I mean, he did that massive project in 2013, yeah. 2013 right? So. I don't know. So I think um, I think there's two things I'd say. So the first thing is, uh, you know, yes, it was a lot of work. Don't don't get me wrong. So it was a whole year of data collection where really nothing else happened. Um, and then you know you got transcription on top of that. I think I had three hundred and thirty thousand words of data, which is obviously a huge amount of data. So yeah, it, it, it was it was absolutely a lot of work. But I would say in the positive side. You know, the only positive side, perhaps, maybe, is that you, you get so much rich data. I, I had, I have so much data um, that I really think the the quality of the the final thesis and the papers. You know, a few more papers coming out this year, hopefully. Um, I think that the quality of those is just so much better for having that that big uh, data collection period. So, what were you doing in the classroom during these observation periods? Well, if it's well, if it's okay, if I can go back to the, sure. the second point that I wanted to say about stimulated recall. So, I mean, what is a stimulated recall? Uh, a stimulated recall is when you observe a teacher, or you observe a participant doing whatever it is they they do. In, in my case, it's a teacher, and you create some kind of recording, and you also take notes, and and these are called recall stimuli. And then following the class, you, you go with the teacher and you, you basically discuss the kind of events that happened. And you use the recording if needed and you use your notes if needed. Um, and you have the student, uh, sorry, you have the participant specifically discuss incidents that occurred within the class and their thought processes. And in my case, how they might have been managing their emotions, regulating their emotions at the time. And you, you know, you said you might not need it for the study. And yeah, I think that's true for some studies. But in, in my case, you know, when we're talking about emotion regulation, which to a great deal involves somebody displaying or hiding emotions or acting in particular ways in the classroom, I found like it was wholly essential to the study, actually. Um, 
and you know so we had i had the the um I had this the the initial interview and and in the initial interviews we talked a lot about general beliefs and general behaviors that the teachers kind of had mm. but then actually seeing that in person what they were doing that was so eye opening because it didn't always match mm. and when i say it didn't match is i guess it didn't match what i had anticipated and and one example off the top of my head there was a teacher who um who had told me that she, I think her exact words were something like, oh, I'm not a fun teacher. I'm not, uh, I'm not a fun, what did she say? I'm not a fun teacher or something like that. And this was in the general first interview. She told me this, I'm not a fun teacher. And when I went to observe her in my mind, I thought, okay, I'm going to be seeing quite, I'm going to be seeing quite a serious class here. I'm going to be seeing quite a serious teacher. But when I got in the classroom, she was perfectly uh, warm, caring, fun, you know, what she'd said, um, what I thought she meant and the reality were completely different. And so when I, when we got into the, um, stimulated recall interview after this, and I was able to talk to her and ask her about it, it turned out that we had just, you know, coming back to that idea of shared assumptions, maybe, you know, we, we just had completely different ideas of what it meant to be a fun teacher or, or a, a warm teacher. And that led down a really interesting discussion of of what kind of teacher she was trying to be, what emotion she was trying to show and and why and where that where that came from as well. I mean, that's just one example. But there, there were so many examples in my study of of how crucial, you know, seeing the teachers and talking to them about what they were actually doing in the class. It just brought up so much data. Mm. Um, well, now you're convincing really, me that I have to do it. Showed. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I wonder what are you, what do you actually think is study, Jonathan? Well, because I think that, um, that, that will dictate whether it would be useful or not. That I, I wouldn't mind having that off air. Oh, uh, sure. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, not that I want someone to necessarily steal my idea, but yeah, I don't yeah. want someone to necessarily you don't steal want to my idea. To the world. Yes. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think if I did do classroom observation, I would lower it to. I would. I, I will say this: I'm thinking about doing it in like two or mm. three stages. Sure. The first yeah, yeah. stage would be no observations. The second stage, the second and third stages would probably include some observations. Mm. Okay. Um. But and yeah, earlier, yeah. earlier I said research is hard, right? Yeah. And what I meant, I think, what I meant when I said that is like sometimes it's. It's very easy to pick up a study and to read it and to pick holes in it and say, oh, you know, this person only they only interviewed 10 people. Mm. Oh, this person only did their survey with 250 students. Mm. Oh, this person only observed one time. Why didn't they observe two times? Well, <laughs> research is hard, right? That's that's really what I'm, I, I, I felt coming out of the MA. It's, you know, getting the time finding the participants uh, to do these this this research isn't isn't easy as full-time you know it's, I'm, I'm, I think we're both full-time teachers as well it, it is really hard well, but so, at, yeah. at the same time I think that's why it's good to be part of a program if you can mm. no matter what kind of pro to have some sort of advisor or coach mm. along the way to just sort of say hey you might run into problems if you keep going down that path or did you think about this or and a lot of times if you don't think about something in the beginning, it can cause problems towards the end. Like, for example, 
I'm thinking about which teachers I'm going to recruit depending on which type of classes they're teaching, right? So right. was that something where these are seven teachers and they're all teaching the same exact class um, yeah, or no, same they, leveler? No, no, they weren't. Um, they weren't. No, no. I um, Maybe I, that really wasn't a consideration for me. The only, the only real consideration I, I was interested in was I, I wanted to make sure that they had a good degree of experience, not, not only as a teacher, but also within Japan. Got it. Okay. And context, you know, I think context is a, is a heavy feature of, of, of my research. And, um, you know, I, I needed people who would be able to articulate, uh, you know, how perhaps how being in Japan or how, um, Japanese cultural features might had, might have in, influenced them. Right. Got um, it. So yeah, in terms of what they taught wasn't an issue, but yeah, I mean, that's, you're right. I mean, that's another difficulty level, isn't it? If you've got to find seven teachers all teaching similar things, all interested in taking part in your research, you know, it, it can be very difficult. Mm. Um, all right. So let's, let's get into some parts of the paper. So <laughs> you, you mentioned student apathy and classroom silence. Yep. And you, you labeled these as sort of low-level stressors, right? Mm, yeah. And you even made a correlation between apathy and silence. So for my, my PhD, I am going to be sort of really going into the silence area. Okay, great. Um, yeah. So that's kind of why I mentioned that. Cool, um, yeah. Then the next two were relational breakdowns, misbehavior, mm. and working conditions. I, I, I'd like to give you a compliment. Mm. I, really, I really enjoyed reading this paper. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, and again, going another another. I'll, I'll come back to the reason why I like reading this paper. But going back to your comments about research is hard. You know, when you're having these conversations with your your PhD advisors and you're you're talking about what you want to do, and you know these layers of uh, administrative concerns or mm. curriculum concerns, like all these all these things can just kind of bring you into the weeds too far. And I liked how you talked about it, right? And as far as the working conditions, right? But you didn't mm. go too deep. And I think that's a really tough thing for research. That's another, as far as research is hard, that could be the name of this podcast episode. So sometimes it's hard for people not to get too far in the weeds because they have to read all this stuff mm. and we have to consider it and then synthesize it. I appreciate how you didn't go too far in, in the weeds on that. And that's something for me, writing papers, it's difficult sometimes knowing, you know, how do you not get too far into one area? And I thought you did a good job of kind of staying in the lane of what this paper was supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Do, do you see what I mean? It's, it, you know, when you talk about these, because there are stresses with curriculum, right? Or mm. uh, I don't like this textbook or I want to, or, my, you know, you did, you talked about the contract and sure, that sure. was, and that was related to the interviews um, from one of the participants. And I get that. Um, but yeah, it's, I guess what you're, what you did is you expanded this more in the PhD study. I just, I appreciate when I read paper, read papers and they don't go too far into the weeds mm. when they don't have to. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, it's worth noting. Uh, so, I mean, this is a paper about frustration and, uh, I was asked, so I was asked pretty recently, oh, wow. Like, you know, you're, you're studying frustration, you know, that must be a pretty difficult thing, blah, blah. I mean, actually, I'm a really, I'm a really positive guy, actually. 
like I'm not really uh, a negative person. I don't I don't particularly think uh, a lot about frustration in my own teaching. I, I don't find that I have all of these frustrations that are in the paper. And maybe that helps, you know, um, it helps me to be a bit more objective because, mm. yeah, if you, could, you could easily imagine if somebody's really burnt out, right, if somebody's really frustrated and they're really burnt out and then they go and write a paper about frustration, I mm. think you could easily see that that paper could end up being uh, a very negative thing. So my, my interest in emotion regulation is actually much more holistic than just focusing on one emotion. So, so what do you mean by that? Yeah, well, um, I, so first of all, uh, first of all, are you, do you know what emotion regulation is? Is that, is that something? So as far as, I mean, uh, when I was reading your paper and I, mm. some of the technical terms, I wasn't really familiar with, sure, but, sure. um, the idea of and and I and I know a little bit from reading some of Kate Mayer's work with cognitive behavioral yep. therapy. Yeah. Um, I, I you know somewhat aware with reframing. Mm. Um, I know you talked about the idea of like sequ- sequential, the that that idea the idea of you know things happen and then you label them a certain way and then you uh, label an emotion to them and they're subjective. I so I, I would say on a surface level. Um, sure. I am kind of aware of it. You talked about, you know, taking deep breaths. Mm. These are things to sort of like curb physiological effects. Um, you talked about avoidance. Yeah. So I think these are things that I, I obviously not, I don't know them as much as someone like you who's done a lot of research, but I would say on a surface level, yeah, I, I have a basic understanding of how it works. Cool. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, broadly speaking, like emotion regulation just means controlling our emotions, but, but that could be a lot of things, right? Because actually we have a lot of power over emotions. We can, for example, we can hide them or show them. Mm. That's one of the ways we control them. But we can make them longer and shorter. Mm. So if we're, if we're experiencing something positive, we can make it longer. We can make it shorter. Um, we can stop an emotion. For, so if we're feeling anger, we can take steps to reduce that or, or stop it. We can we can generate emotions uh, if, we, if we need to feel happy for some reason we can think happy thoughts generate emotion so as 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 humans we have we actually have a lot of power over the emotions that we experience whether whether we realize it or not mm. we do have a lot of power and in general psychology um the most the mo- the thing that's been mostly studied is something called strategies and strategies is you know Maybe it's obvious, but it's it's how we might regulate our emotions. So how do we extend an emotion? Mm. How do we hide an emotion? How do we stop an emotion, etc.? You go you go to acting class, right? Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> Te- teaching is acting, I guess. Uh, and then um, you know, more recently, I think people have also started to consider why, and this is in general psychology as well. Why? Why? Well, why do people do it? Why? Why do we? Why do we hide our emotions? Why do we? Um, why do we use a particular strategy? You know, why do we use one strategy more than another? Hmm. So my interest is is a really broad one. And I am interested in, yeah, why might we regulate our emotions? And how might, how, how might we do it? And so I've really been trying to understand, I think, this why. And um, 
for well-being reasons is definitely one one reason and this frustration paper is within that realm mm. um, we regulate our emotions to protect ourselves uh, from negative emotions or, or you know thinking more positively we regulate our emotions to generate positive emotions for, for ourselves so that we enjoy our work more so that we um, feel more positivity and less stress but the, you know there are many reasons actually why a teacher might regulate their emotions um, they might do it for what's called a, a performance or instrumental reason mm. so they they might display a particular emotion because they want to have an effect on the students they want to change the students behavior absolutely and so their actions there that may or may not may or may not uh, coincide with well-being right they, they might regulate their emotions in a way which which instrument instrumentally affects the students and simultaneously has a positive effect on their well-being but they might have a they might regulate their emotions in a way which has an impact on the students but actually has a negative effect on the teacher mm. you know another thing is related to uh, responsibility or identity you know teachers actually have a responsibility to display certain emotions to hide certain emotions mm. And these these um, these responsibilities are not always explicitly explained. Sometimes they are. You know, sometimes it's just general notions that we have of what a good teacher is. You know, I think, uh, you know, the interesting thing when you ask teachers, you know, what emotions do you think you should hide in the classroom? Most teachers say, oh, you should hide anger. You should hide frustration. Mm. Why? Oh, because that's what good teachers are. Or, you know, the teachers I had, the best teachers I had did that. So these are kind of, you know, uh, rules related to how we might display or hide emotions. And they come from, you know, our past experiences. They might come from from society as well. So so my my overall goal is to understand this this whole area of emotion regulation. But when it came to this paper itself, you know, and and we sat down to think about what what are we what are we learning? This is really an exploration. This this paper. What are we learning from these teachers? Yeah, if we think about the negative emotions they're talking about, frustration is the main one that they are and, they are talking about. Maybe this is a reason why this paper has been read so many times. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a, I really appreciate you doing it because, like, what I'm going to be studying is totally different from this, but I can I can really take some things from this and, mm. and, and push off from them, which is, great, great. which, that's, which is cool. And, and it's funny that you said, you know, at the time teachers weren't even aware of this. It, it feels like there's a lot more of, of these type of papers popping up now. Um, and I'm really interested in it, in it now. So it is kind of funny to hear you say that, that, it, that there wasn't really much, or maybe even mention it in the paper. There was no paper like this before 2018. Yeah, there, there was no, uh, as, as far as I'm aware, there was certainly when I was doing the research, the data was collected, I think 2017, there wasn't really anything on language teacher emotion regulation around that time. But as, as you mentioned, papers did start popping up. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and now it's, it's a huge a huge growth area, I think. Not, not just emotion regulation, just teacher teacher emotions in general you know we've seen i think three or four um edited volumes come out in the past three years on this topic and more almost certainly more are going to be coming soon 
Yeah. And, you know, and, and I think it's, we talked about anxiety earlier as well, but I think it's great that we're now looking at emotions more holistically, as in mm. what I mean is to say, like, teachers, teachers don't have just one kind of experience, right? They experience a whole range of positive, whole range of negative emotions. And the, and the crucial thing that I, I think I want to make clear in my research is not only do they experience these things, but they also have power over these things. They're not, they're not just things that are happening to the teachers. Whether the teachers know it or not, they are to a great degree contributing to the emotions that they experience. And that, that's really powerful, I think. Um, once you, once you realise that, I think you can maybe take a bit more control um, and hopefully hopefully you know you know have more positive experiences i think uh, and fewer negative experiences that would obviously be the, the the ideal goal wouldn't it the ideal outcome well the name of the paper is teacher frustration and emotion regulation in university language teaching and again this mm. was published in the chinese journal of applied linguistics uh, october 18 volume 41 number 4 if some of those uh statistics ring a bell, you might remember that I also did an interview with Kyle Talbot. Um, and this was Kyle Talbot's paper was also published in the same volume. So maybe real quickly, this, this particular volume was focused on emotional regulation, emotions, uh, emotion, uh, teacher emotions, teacher emotions. Um, so yeah, there were about, I think, 10, 10 uh, articles. I, I mean, I'm off the top of my head but yeah there was a, a special edition uh, special issue of the chinese journal of applied linguistics focusing on language teacher emotions so uh maybe to finish off with this so where are you in your phd journey um kyle he just finished his this year yeah so are you are you close to finishing yes uh yes i believe so so i'm uh i'm right in the the what's the what's the right word in limbo. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no. So I should say um, I, I successfully defended actually in May. And oh, I was wow. awarded to pass with minor, um, minor revisions, and I, I've since resubmitted those. So I, I'm, I'm right at the end now. I'm just waiting for the examiners to, um, you know, to have a chance to review the, the revisions. And fingers crossed, you know, so that, that will all be fine, I hope. What so. was the name of your thesis? Uh, the name of the thesis was, uh, let, me make, <laughs> let me make sure I get it completely correct. Mm -hmm. It was the, the emotion regulation of non-Japanese EFL teachers at a Japanese university. And within that thesis, uh, see, this is kind of my question, which many, 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 a lot of people might have. So within that thesis, how many studies were there or how many individual papers are in that thesis? Yeah, I decided in the end just to have uh, this one study in there. So okay. the the frustration paper we talked about isn't included as part of the PhD. Okay. But I I refer to that as kind of a pilot or you know a, a pre-study um, through which I developed the final uh, methodology that was used. So this this study is a an expansion. Uh, I think I mentioned earlier, but fifteen participants uh, and. Uh, more observations were, were included. Is yeah. there going to be a paper coming off the back of the thesis at some point? Yeah, there's uh, so one paper is being published uh, now, so it should be out 
by the end of 2022 is a book chapter on, and that focuses on identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, a particular, it's quite it's quite a narrow paper, I suppose, but it's focusing on how the teachers regulated their emotions to meet uh, t- to meet um, two uh, very stereotypical prescribed identity roles that exist in the Japanese context, which is that non-Japanese teachers are supposed to be fun and non-Japanese teachers are supposed to be caring and motivating. Mm. So talking about how they regulated their emotions to, to, to achieve those goals. And then there's a, there's another paper coming out, which is under review. So I can't really say much about it, but um, fingers crossed that should also be out this year. And then I have I have other plans, too, as well. Yeah. I mean, coming back to what we said about data, you know, the good thing about the good thing about having 300,000 words of data is um, there's a lot to say about it. (laughs) So so I think, you know, that's that's a a real benefit from for for doing what what was very difficult at the time. But what um, what I feel like really glad glad about now is, is having such rich data. So what are your what are your feelings now coming to the end of this journey? Oh, looking? the end of the PhD? Yeah. Oh, can't wait for a holiday. That'd be good. <laughs> no, no, no. no uh, <laughs> it has been, um, and I'm sure, I'm sure everybody who's done a PhD can attest. I think the hardest thing about a PhD is not, it's not necessarily the intellectual side. You know, there are times when intellectually it's tough, but um, you know, maintaining your focus maintaining motivation yeah you know this this it has taken a long time and that was partly um you know it's taken longer than i expected partly because of covid partly Mm. because of uh, other kind of personal things that happened in my life so um i'm really ready to kind of uh move on and and look at something not not completely new but I, i suppose i'm ready to collect data again i'm ready to get on and to continue uh focusing on on new new ideas i suppose is what i mean yeah well um if people are interested they should they should uh look you up on researchgate if they haven't already um yeah that'd there's, be great. A, there's a few of your papers i'm actually reading at the moment and i'm looking forward to to reading these next papers but again the the paper we talked about today uh teacher frustration and emotion regulation in university language teaching. Mm. Sam Morris, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations. Cool. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Yeah, it's really interesting. Thank you.